You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. with WBAL TV, TV anchor Andre Hepkins. And if you're posting about tonight online, you can use hashtag at the Pratt, uh, and you'll be added to our landing page at theprat.org. It's a place that we like to use to share the love for all the opportunities and events at the Pratt. So tonight, Tim and Andre will talk, then we'll have a Q&A, and then there will also be time to mingle and buy books from the local independent bookstore, the Ivy Bookshop. Um, Tim Moore, who, by the way, um, and I think many of you know this, is an Ellicott City native, Whoop. is an award, he's also an award-winning translator and has collaborated on memoirs by musicians of Guns N' Roses and Kiss. Uh, his own writing has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, New York Magazine, and Inked, and he spent several, several years as a staff ad- editor at Playboy Magazine, where he edited writers like Hunter S. Thompson and John Dean. Uh, and today, he also found out that he is on the Carnegie Mel- Mellon long list. So that is very exciting for, for this book. Um, And prior to his illustrious writing career, he earned his living as a club DJ in Berlin. So we're kind of seeing how it comes together. Um, All of this has situated him to write this cinematic, deeply researched, and thrillingly topical burning down the house, punk rock, revolution, and the fall of the Berlin Wall. It brings to life the young men and women who successfully fought authoritarianism three chords at a time, and it's a fiery testament to the irrepressible spirit of resistance. Moore connects their resistance to the East German dictatorship and the government's response to protest movements such as Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, and No DAPL. I knew I couldn't wait to read the book when I heard Tim speak passionately and compassionately about the book at an event in June, and now I'm so glad he's back in Baltimore uh, to share it with all of you. So please give a warm welcome to Tim Moore and Andre Hopkins. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. So I just want to um, start by saying, um, as I was telling Tim, I just got off the set at 6 o'clock. Raced, <laughs> took my, put my life in jeopardy racing down 83. Actually, that's always a... <laughs> I made it um, in one piece. Um, I've never done one of these before. I moderated a discussion with an author, so uh, bear with me. So either you guys are my guinea pig or I'm your guinea pig. <laughs> Since we're talking about communications and expression, it's all in your frame of reference. And um, So I guess we're going to start off by, I guess, Tim's going to read a little bit, then Tim and I will talk about it, and then we'll open it up to discussions. How many people have finished the book so far? Okay. How many people are midway? Okay. How many people have started? 
Okay, all right. So that's why it's very befitting that we start off with Tim just reading some passages so that he can guide us, can get the gist. It's very fascinating what I've read so far. I've actually started it myself, and it's actually, being honest, <laughs> and a lot of my play. <laughs> but it's, um, it's a page turner. It's, you're already, I can tell, very, very well written. Um, book and well researched, so um, yeah, so you'll enjoy it. So let's uh, rock and roll. So I, I'm just going to read a little bit from the first chapter, just to give a rough idea of where we're starting. <clears throat> the very first punk in East Berlin went by the name Major. She was 15 years old and lived in a neighborhood called Kopenick, about a 20-minute ride southeast from the center of town in one of the city's elevated S-Bahn trains. It was September 1977. Major's proper name was Britta Bergman and she learned lessons about the Berlin Wall early. Britta had never known her own father, but she had an older sister whose father was a West Berliner who occasionally came to see the family in East Berlin. When Britta was five years old, her sister's father was over for a visit, and in the evening, when he said he had to be going, had to get back over to West Berlin, Britta had an idea. Well, come along, she said enthusiastically. She didn't understand why space clouded. No, he said, confused. You can't just come with me. You live in the East. That realization of what the wall meant stuck with Britta. Growing up, Britta was aware that her family had a history of opposition politics. Her maternal grandfather, who had been in the German Communist Party in the 1920s, and spent time in prison after Hitler's rise. Her maternal grandmother was officially branded an anti-fascist and placed on Heinrich Himmler's blacklist for, among other things, maintaining friendships with Jews and refusing to perform the Nazi salute. Despite their communist beliefs, life in Stalinist East Germany hadn't been easy for them either with her grandparents detained for weeks and accused of spying as a result of a friendship with a Swiss national. Britta grew up in her grandmother's apartment. Her grandmother, was, her grandmother was openly critical of the dictatorship and had a strong influence on her granddaughter's worldview. Britta learned not only to view government propaganda with a large dose of skepticism, but to see the entire system as unjust and illegitimate. All through school, Britta suffered from the feeling that her choices were being usurped by the state that she was being disenfranchised from casting a vote in the most crucial decisions in her own life and destiny. Decisions about who she was and who she would or could be. She knew, she just knew it was wrong, that you weren't permitted to read whatever you wanted, that you couldn't openly express your opinions. Wrong that creativity, curiosity, and independent thinking were forbidden. I just want to be allowed to be an individual, to be who I am, to make my own choices. In the summer of 1977, one of British friends had a visit from a cousin from West Berlin. The cousin told the girls about someone who'd, ex who'd escaped to West Berlin by crossing one of the lakes that formed the border down in, south in the southwest corner of the city near Potsdam. Fifteen-year-old Britta felt inspired. She wanted to escape, too. The future laid out for me in the GDR is just not acceptable. It's time for me to get out of here. She and her friend secretly dis discussed the idea, and soon both of them began to make plans. Britta even wanted to go scout out the lake shore. In the end, though, the escape attempt did not go beyond teenage daydreams. At the beginning of the school year in September 1977, Britta's sister gave her a stack of photos and pull-out posters that she'd amassed from the precious West German teen magazines her father brought over for her. Images of Abba, Boniem, Smokey, the cheesy chart toppers of the day. As Britta leafed through the images, she suddenly stopped at one. It was a black and white shot of a band called the Sex Pistols. What the fuck is this, she wondered, fascinated by the ripped clothes and their sneering faces. At school, she asked around in class to try to figure out if anyone had heard of this mysterious band with the crazy name, the Sex Pistols. 
One kid in school knew everything about music, and sure enough, he knew the pistols. They're punk, he told her. Punk? But wait, she thought. She'd heard that ACDC was supposed to be punk, and she couldn't stand ACDC. <laughs> she hated hard rock. Not long afterward, though, Gerda was listening to a Western radio station, Radio Luxembourg, and heard something that immediately caught her attention. The song started with a ragged, chiming guitar line, and then the drums kicked in, and then it got seriously loud, chugging along like some kind of overheated locomotive. And then the singer started, it wasn't exactly singing, the guy couldn't carry a tune. He was sort of howling in a tortured monotone, sneering and shrieking and growling. There's no point in asking, you'll get no reply. The song was like a punch in her gut, but the singer sounded committed in a way she'd never heard before, almost possessed. It was as if the band was speaking directly to her. She felt like a switch had been thrown inside her, as if the song had activated something that had been buried inside her, something she didn't know was there until this moment. Holy shit. She waited for the DJ to identify the band. That was the Sex Pistols with Pretty Vacant, said the DJ. The Sex Pistols. Now that was what she had expected from the picture of the band, their fucked up hair and their fucked up skin and their fucked up clothing. She hacked off her hair the next day, affecting the look she knew from the black and white photo of the Pistols. And then she started rummaging through her sister's stack of Western magazines for more shots of the band. Once she had a few, she began to modify her clothes to mimic the Pistols' look as best she could. She ripped holes in her shirt and then sewed the holes closed again with big, ugly stitches. She cut a swatch of white cloth and wrote destroy on it with a black pen and then sewed it on the chest pocket of her jacket. She nicked the chain from a spare toilet plunger and attached it to the same jacket, stringing it from the chest pocket to one of the buttons. In one of the pictures Berta found, Johnny Rotten, the pistol singer, had safety pins on the shoulders of his jacket. Berta could do that too. She put a row of safety pins on the top of each shoulder of her own jacket punk rock epaulets. You could hear the gasps at school when she showed up with the short, with the short hair and clothes ripped and stuck with pins. One kid came up to her and greeted her based on her shiny metal epaulets. Hello, Major. And from that moment on, that was her name. <laughs> wow. Fascinating uh, so far, um, I would say, Tim. And um, first of all, who here loves music? Okay, so pretty universal. Who here loves history? Okay, all right. Well, almost as equal. So I crash. Right. <laughs> and this is your book. I mean, this is um, a book about a quintessential historical event, a quintessential moment in history, told through a musical youth movement. I mean, you and I grew up. You're a few years ahead of me, but um, we we grew up as um, during the Reagan era. Um, Ronald Reagan was the president when we were growing up. We learned the evil empire, you know, the Soviet Union, the Soviet bloc, the Eastern Bloc countries in the West, and the Berlin Wall. We remember, I remember Peter Jennings on the air, the moment the Berlin Wall fell, and Peter Jennings narrating this, this moment, this international moment. But never heard this story quite told this way. First of all, let's talk about what made you embark upon this mission. I mean, to tell the story of the Berlin Wall through punk rock. Yeah, well, like you, I grew up with this Reagan mythology shoved down my throat, and um, we were told basically that uh, kids in the East Block revolted because they wanted hamburgers and Levi's and Western pop music. And I was skeptical of that, um, that narrative, but I didn't have any sort of basis mm. necessarily, a concrete basis for my skepticism. And then by coincidence, I ended up 
meeting these people. So I moved to Berlin in 1992. Wow. And I started working as a DJ in the clubs there in the former East. And it just turned out that almost all the early clubs and bars and galleries and everything that was happening there at the time, almost all of that had been set up by former East German punks. Mm. And after a while, I became friends with some of them and they showed me, in one case, a guy showed me a, a folder that he kept beneath mm. a, a false drawer in his in a cabinet during the dictatorship and it had song lyrics from a band he'd been in and some photos of uh, him and his friends. And I realized that here mm. were the people who had actually done the, the ones who actually battled the dictatorship. So mm. it takes a lot more than some uh, foreign dignitary coming over and sure. saying some pretty words or, or the latent desire for hamburgers to bring that dictatorship. And mm -hmm. these kids had fought with their bodies. It's futures to do the practical work of fighting against the dictatorship. So it's one thing to go to Germany now. I mean, I know a lot of people in the banking industry that'll go to Frankfurt <laughs> yeah. um, now in a unified Germany. But what would make a young man go to, to a recently <laughs> united Germany in 1992. So let's go back yeah. to the decision um, to go there in the first place. Well, I, I wasn't really very politically savvy <laughs> as, a, as a teenager, but I was savvy enough to know that I didn't really believe, I, I didn't think, I didn't believe it was narrative, for instance. Mm -hmm. And it seemed as if, at that time, this is only two years after unification, that if one of these mythical political third ways was going to be discovered, mm. it was going to be in East Europe at that time. Sure. And so I thought, well, that'd be an interesting place to spend some time. I'm just going to live abroad for a while and I'll try to go there. And it had the bonus um, because I didn't realize that Germany and Oktoberfest were not the same thing. And so <laughs> <laughs> I thought I would get off the plane in Berlin and everyone would be in Lederhosen and someone would hand me one of those beers about this size. Yeah. Um, instead, I landed in this gray high rise. Um, a block that you'd see wow. in, in like a James Bond movie of the Eastern Block. Mm. Uh, uh, 20 high-rise buildings all look the same. I was in one of them. Wow. And uh, so it was um, initial disappointment mm. without the giant beers and instead in this gray high-rise uh, block. But pretty quickly as I discovered this whole world that, that I ended up operating in for the next six, seven years. So. You spent six, seven years over there. Yeah, I was, I was over there. I had a job at the university for one semester at the job uh, uh, at the university in former East Berlin. And I was just sort of a, uh, I just hung around the English department and helped people with their writing, basically. Right. And so six months turned into six years. Wow. Because it was obvious very quickly that even though it wasn't, a, I wouldn't say that they discovered a political third way, but I had sort of discovered a place that I wanted to stay. It was, it was a phenomenal scene that I wanted to be part of it. And even in the first few months, I, I started hanging out in this world and met a lot of musicians. And so when I decided I wanted to stay, they said, well, you're a music guy, just start DJing. And so that was a way to also stay without having residency or work permits. And uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> What was it about the, that movement that pulled you in? It's one thing to like something or to you know, think oh, something's cool, but what was it about it that made you stay for years? At the time, the eastern part of Berlin seemed to be this blank slate with limitless possibilities. People were doing all kinds of things. It was so inexpensive and so wide open. There was, for the first few years, there was virtually no um, municipal uh, government almost. I mean, mm -hmm. there was there was no licensing wow. process. There was the buildings were all empty. You could just do whatever you wanted. 
And so, as a result, whereas we're used to bohemianism being something that's formed in a reaction to a status yeah. quo, over there at that time, there wasn't a status quo. So it was a very sort of, it was a positive sort of bohemianism. It was, mm -hmm. it was creating a kind of an idealized society based, I'd argue, in a lot of ways on the ethos of the East Berlin punk world. They were sort of creating these oases of ideology um, in this empty city. It's an empty city. There's just really no government, really. There's no organization. And in the midst of that, you discover these punks who are kind of creating a new culture. Yeah, because they, as a music scene, it came to a close pretty quickly after the fall of the wall. Mm -hmm. um, there was a band actually playing the night of the fall of the wall, November 9th, 1989, one of these guys was playing a gig. And during the show, the crowd started going crazy. And they thought either we're really drunk or we're playing really great. <laughs> <laughs> and instead they, Which one was it? Yeah, well, instead they come off the stage and they're told the Berlin Wall fell. And uh, so they broke up the band that night because they realized that this limit, the, the goal that they had of bringing down the dictatorship had succeeded. Mm. And that in the future, the, their message and the music that they attached it to was going to have to be different because the political situation was going to be so different. So different. So, take us to that moment where okay, it's one thing to be over there and have all these experiences and to witness all this. Take us to the point at which you said, you know what, I'm going to sit down and write a book about what I saw and heard. Yeah. Well, having met these people over there during the '90s, I always it's the story stuck with me because I realized it was something important. And yet it was a basically invisible scene because the, the East German media never recognized dissident um, activity, basically. Mm -hmm. So it was never covered in the Eastern media. And for ideological reasons, the punks did not seek out attention in the Western media. So a lot of the activists in East Germany did that. They cultivated contacts in the West that they thought helped would either protect them or help their cause. But the punks didn't do that. And in fact, I've read Stasi reports where the Stasi officer will be at one of these illegal church concerts and a Western reporter will have gotten wind of it and come to the show mm. and try to start talking to the punks, and the punks will tell them to fuck off. And it's, this doesn't compute for the stuff. Right. They're like, wait, they're, they're Western focused. Why are they not right. with Western journalists? But, so anyway, as a result of that, they were not in a position to be included in the sort of grand story of how the wall fell. And, and so here's this bunch of fascinating people and the idea that stuck in my head. It was only later after I'd become a writer that I realized I might be able to do this book and went back and then I spent about 10 years doing the research. Um, 10 years? Yeah, because it's hard to track down some of these people. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But then the other thing is, interestingly enough, once I started working on the book, and again, it was basically because the story was fascinating to me on a personal level, but then as I'm working on it, here come the Snowden revelations about mass surveillance here in the States. Right and the militarization of our police here and these draconian reactions wow. to peaceful protesters like Black Lives Matter and so forth. And I realized that this story actually um, was much more relevant than we might be comfortable admitting. So I thought that in a way the time timing was terrific to tell the story of a, a historical, a concrete historical example of a, of a youth grassroots movement that actually um, affected change in our society. Talk about that timing of what you wrote about and then what's going on in the world now with different and various youth movements and the parallels that you see. Well, for, me, you yeah, it, for me, it has mostly to do with, um, I think that the lesson, I don't think there's a direct analog. Okay. So I don't think you need to just pass out a bunch of guitars to 15-year-olds here to solve our problems. 
But there is the sort of call to action. Mm -hmm. One of the, they used to paint graffiti, the East Berlin punks, there was a piece yeah. of graffiti that said, don't die in the waiting room of the future. So ask you about that. Yeah, and that was actually the title of the German version of the book. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that quote sort of sums up the lesson to be taken from, from what they accomplished in that it's just a, it's a, it's a rallying cry against complacency. It's mm -hmm. about not hoping that change will take place, but going out and making it take place. I mean, and, and you gave me that segue, I mean, don't die in the waiting room of the future. I was very moved by that, that phrase. Let's talk more about that and what it meant from the translation from the German to the English. And, I mean, it, it's a simple statement, but it's so profound at, at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they, uh, the key role they played was in stealing the resolve of the rest of the opposition. So in the early 80s, as the bands, it became a really uniquely Eastern phenomenon quite quickly. Mm -hmm. So initially, it sparked by listening to the Sex Pistols and Western music, but then it becomes something that's devoted to dealing with the conditions in their own lives. Mm. And that's when the Stasi starts to see it as an existential threat. And one of the big surprises for me in the early research was seeing the level of paranoia right. that the Stasi had, the Stasi's secret police, towards a bunch of kids with bad haircuts, basically. Right? <laughs> but as I got deeper into the research, I realized they were right. It really was pushing kids to get off this kind of preordained path mm. that you were meant to stay on. And so whereas the UK punks always talked about no future and the idea that they didn't have a place in society because of economic conditions, the Eastern Punk started railing against too much future. Too much future, right? Yeah, because they had the communist youth organizations and their schooling and apprenticeships, mandatory military service, and then a job that they had no say in. And they wanted to take control of the decisions in their own lives. And then what happened was when there's this major crackdown, 83, 84, and the mm. punks end up serving more. Um, lengthy jail time than other activist groups. Sure. It was actually the, the, the harshest sentences of the entire uh, Honecker era. The, the, the head of state was Eric Honecker at the time. And the amazing thing to me and the thing that inspired all of me about everyone I interviewed was they would go to, often go to jail for up to two years, say, mm -hmm. for anti-government wow. lyrics, come back out, put the leather jacket on, and go back out and fight. Mm -hmm. And that was the game changer because the other activists, or at least opposition-minded people, could see that it was possible to resist and survive. Mm -hmm. So you could go up against the Stasi and live to, live to come back out and fight. One of the big, one of the powers the Stasi had was this, this unknown factor. You didn't know what would happen to you when you ran afoul of the Stasi. You had no idea. And so here is a bunch of people who ran the experiment, basically. They went to prison, came back out, kept fighting. And that, I think, played a key role in allowing other activist groups and protests to move out onto the street into the public eye, where they can then snowball into <coughs> the, the mass demonstrations that we saw in the news in '89. Mm -hmm. So th that initial group of people who you know, stood up for something went away, came back, that propelled mm -hmm. more and more and more. Yeah, and interestingly enough, I think one of the reasons they were able to keep replenishing the scene despite people mm -hmm. being sent off to jail or conscripted into army units that were designed to. Uh, re-educate you politically, um, was that their form of protest was so open. So there were mm. dissident writers and artists and whatnot, sure. but they could do their thing, put their work out into the world, and then sort of fade back into society. Whereas the punks, because it was such a visual form of, or it was like a, a personal form of protest, when they, anytime they appeared in public, they were sort of voicing opposition. And that also turned other kids on, too. So mm. in when they started playing concerts, 
other teenagers would see it and go, oh, I want to be part of that. Super exciting. It would sure. be cool. It would be rebellious. Sure. Not necessarily in a political way at first, but they see this sort of I, the typical teenage rebellion, the appeal of that. And then because the Eastern media didn't report on these trials, sure. for instance, they didn't often realize that they might be subject to um, very severe consequences by joining this, this group. So, obviously, you experienced all of this, you saw, you heard a lot, and then you researched it. A lot of times when we go back and we revisit things that we already experienced, we learn something else, we learn something new. What would you say the biggest lesson was for you when you went back and then you came up with this? Yeah, it's, that's really interesting. I, I knew it was a really cool story, I knew, and I knew that people had been through some extraordinary circumstances and come back to the other side. But as I started to talk to people in, in a story, sort of a serious interview format, and then also talk to people who I hadn't yet met back in the old days, the stories were even more incredible than I realized. Um, so I think that was maybe the biggest surprise. And then also, when I started to access the Stavi files, seeing the level of paranoia, seeing the how high into the government the concern got, you know, it reached the top guy at the Stasi. Stop. Wow. Yeah. And so I think those were probably the biggest surprises. Okay. I think my, right about now might be the time to start opening it up sure. to the. Um, so let's go back to my initial, one of my initial questions. Who read the entire book? Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So I want to start with you, um, man. <laughs> well, no, no. I'm, oh, I'm, now you're I'm big on book. <laughs> in part of what I do. I'm big on body language and just you know just reading and picking up the cues. And she was just like. Nodding and <laughs> raising. So first of all, what's your name, ma'am? I'm Jamie Watson. Jamie Watson? Jamie? Uh-huh. So first of all, what, first of all, you clearly liked the book. Oh, yeah, I loved it. Why? Um, I'm well, going to leave the room here. <laughs> you know when you read a book and you're like, well, I know what I'm getting out of this book. I, like, I got it. Like, I was, I, I uh, the fact that I kept drawing the parallels to what's going on right now. Mm. Also, I'm an old punk rocker, too. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, brought back memories. Uh, something I would like to say that it's cool that the book came out now and not later, because also all the musicians, you can YouTube them. You're like, yeah. oh, let's listen to this. And they're all, you know, they're on Spotify. You can watch videos. They kind of sound like they were made in a East Berlin in 1988. <laughs> yeah. but, but they're there, and yeah. it was so cool to be able to do that. So... You, I've, I've promoted the heck out of this book. Uh, thank wow. you. Wow. You know the recordings. He didn't pay you, right? <laughs> What's that? He didn't, he didn't pay you. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> you know the recordings because they were banned from any state media. They couldn't. They couldn't go into recording studios. They couldn't press records. Obviously, they couldn't get on the yeah. radio. Wow. And so all the recordings are done on little handheld cassette players, like we used wow. to use for film strips yeah. in the seventies, and in a basement. So they're they're playing illegal music into really low tech machines. Mm. That's the only form of of uh, recordings that are in existence. Wow. What, what was the biggest lesson for you? So you, you say you um, love music, obviously, mm-hmm. but did, did you initially love history? Uh, uh, Not as much as music. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Did you find that with <laughs> your love of music, it made it easier for you to digest what you were reading? Yeah, I mean, I think that's how I would share this with, like, teens, you know, okay. who we would say, like, you know, like history, but there's an angle in, and mm. that the music to me, and the fashion, and the way that they use the fashion to identify each other mm. when they were walking around, they could identify how they looked. Um, I mean, that's still out there today. There's symbols, I'm sure, that I don't know anything about. 
but because um, I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> but well, it's, funny that, it's funny, for me, it very quickly went beyond the music. It became a project that I mm. saw as primarily a, almost like a social history or a, um, mm. it, it definitely transcended the music. Because in a lot of cases, the musicians themselves also saw their music as basically a tool. It wasn't so much that they wanted to be professional musicians or something, but they wanted to fight somehow, and this became their weapon in a way. So I think, yeah, uh, that's an interesting aspect of the book is I don't, you don't necessarily need to be wired into to music to understand this, the battle. Yeah. Gentlemen, in the oh. back. Oh, an actual answer. historian. Did you, uh, <laughs> did you feel a little bit afraid trying to get into the Stasi files? No, um, the, the, the only points of, of contention are there were a lot of um, informants. The Stasi recruited informants very effectively, and, um, and, and well, it gets worse. They 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 would they would recruit people as minors. So in a lot of cases, some there were people in the punk scene who were recruited recruited as snitches when they were fourteen, fifteen, and so that's that's a touchy subject, obviously. And bec but often because they were recruited as minors, and because the Stasi almost they were also very good at profiling people. And they were able to find people who they could convince um, that they were helping their friends. So you're working with us. By working with us, you're going to keep your friends out of jail. You're going to keep your. You're going to spare your friends uh, an interrogation or a, a detainment. And and then of course they did have the opposite take. I mean, if that didn't work, they could say it'd be a shame if your parents lost their jobs or if your sister didn't get into university. Or and, and so there's there's tricky points where some some informants have sort of been forgiven, and then others are completely ostracized. There was only one person, and all the people I tried to talk to, there was only one person who refused to speak to me, and he was an informant um, who had basically devoted the rest of his life to kind of a penance. He's now exists in a kind of religious um, asceticism uh, and doesn't deal with the outside world. At all? Yeah. Wow. Sir, um, what was your take on the read? What was your take on the reading of this book? The man's a master of his field. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't paid either? <laughs> you weren't paid either? None of that. He's a professional historian. He's a UMBC oh, wow. historian. <laughs> so as a UMBC historian, as a historical text, how would you describe this book? No footnotes. <laughs> very, very important contribution. Mm. You can't say the punk rocks brought down the wall, but you can say there is a niche Mm. that broke through incredibly terrible systems. I was in Poland during the revolution, and we found out that every, about every fifth person was called in the police station. And they would say, you will tell us what your neighbors are doing. Mm. And your neighbor knows what you are doing, and if you don't tell us what he's doing, we'll get you. I mean, it was just an incredible mm. thing to break through and how they had the courage to do it in East Berlin, which was much tighter yeah. than the mm -hmm. rest of the East Bloc was amazing. Yeah, the Polish punks were actually quite quite far in advance. Really? They were ahead of the Eastern punks. They, they, they were able to perform in the open, for instance. And of course, politically, um, things progressed faster in Poland as well, solidarity. And, and from your perspective, you, you, you called it a, a very important contribution. And why would you characterize it as such? because of what he described. It's Real. open, open uh, public, open, and it does show you, boy, you might be able to survive mm. even though you're rocking the boat. Wow. 
uh, and I think that was a, a major thing. But the Eastern Bloc itself, everybody was so tired of the system that mm -hmm. it took some sparks, but everybody started to participate after a while. Wow. Yeah, obviously no one group can bring sure. down a dictatorship. Everyone had to join the forces sure. to make it work. But they definitely played a key role in um, showing that it was possible to, to really fight the, the security apparatus. Mm. Let's talk to someone who has not read it yet. <laughs> okay. I, I want to go back to the very beginning here. You get down off the plane. If I were a German, I wouldn't trust you. I would think that you were sent by the American government yeah, or somebody um, to spy on these people. And so the first question I have is why did people have any trust in you whatsoever? And second, how did you get the job being the DJ on a radio station? Clubs. I only DJ in clubs. Uh -huh. um, the trust factor, I don't think this book would have been possible at all if I hadn't lived there 25, whatever it is, number of years ago. Um, the fact that I knew people inside the scene for a long period of time and they knew that I wasn't approaching this topic from a typical American perspective is the only way it worked. And even as a, even with that, uh, it's still I still struggle to convince certain people to talk to me. Um, there would be times where I'd have almost like a pre-interview. I would go and meet someone and talk for several hours for that person to become comfortable with the fact that I was indeed. Concentrating well, I, the, I think what's unique about this book is it's concentrating on the eastern part of the story, the organically eastern um, opposition movement. So I, I just leave aside the, the western myth, basically, and I think that was the key to them trusting me, and the fact that I usually arrived at the door with a recommendation from somebody they'd known in the '80s and I'd known since the '90s. So you had that eastern German street cred. Basically, <laughs> basically, yeah, basically, and also, I mean, having spent the '90s in these circles, I, I have a kind of um, uh, level of cultural awareness that I think is fairly unusual. So I can sort of speak the lingo. I know a lot of the the, uh, the jargon that they use amongst themselves, <coughs> uh, not only the music stuff, but the things about the Eastern government. And the so I, I know the terminology. I mean, it even extends to the fact that when I didn't, when I moved to Germany, I didn't speak a word of German, mm -hmm. and so I learned it from listening. And so I can speak it with a heavy kind of East Berlin accent. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that helps too. <laughs> that, that, that helps too. Yeah, well, I want to go back to your initial meeting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, how I got into the club in the first well, place. An American marches into East Germany. Well, the wall fallen. It wasn't East Germany. So, I mean, it, it was two years after, after unification. So it wasn't that the CIA would have been snooping around in these areas. Right. I don't mm -hmm. think anyone, no one ever suspected I was a spy. Okay. Okay. So as someone who has not read it yet, um, based on what you've heard up here and uh, from Jamie um, and the professor in the back, um, would you be led to read it now? Well, I think the really interesting thing is this didn't make the media in any way, right? It, it was just um, informal gatherings in mm -hmm. these clubs and presenting a novel viewpoint that these people hadn't heard. And you're arguing the cumulative effect of that was very significant, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so you, 
Um, you don't really need large public gatherings and large amounts of access to media to influence large numbers of people, right? That's yeah, that's an interesting aspect interesting, that, yeah. that's so different from now, right? If you, right. If you compare it to yeah. say, Pussy Riot, right? What they're doing is for media. Yeah. Right. Whereas these people had to convert people one-on-one, on, one on one basically, directly, face-to-face. You're about, to, you're about the clubs and how I ended up in there, just to go back and real quickly answer that question. Um, in the university in East Berlin, the Humboldt University where I was uh, not teaching but sort of an adjunct, um, there were a lot of former dissidents there because in the Eastern times, if you wanted to go to university, they had to be convinced that you were sort of politically mature enough for that opportunity, so, which meant, among other things, that you'd have to serve instead of one and a half years in the army, three years in the army. So opposition-minded people were not prepared to do that. But then when the wall fell, you could go to university without these, without these uh, preconditions. And of course, it was, it was Europe, so it was free and everything. So um, a lot of former activists were at the university. And a lot of them were involved in the club scene. And so when I was friendly with them, it became clear that I wanted to stay. That's how they suggested, well, you can work in the clubs. You're a music guy. It's a cash business. You don't need <laughs> permits. <laughs> Talk about that a little bit more, but just the DJing. <laughs> in I don't know how many times I've mentioned that I was a legal <laughs> resident there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, but so this gentleman's, uh, I mean, because it, 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 it's fascinating just to hear, okay, an American in 92 goes to East Germany and becomes a DJ in the clubs over there. Like, it's just. <laughs> it was a wide open scene. People, go, really? <laughs> like, people were really, really open and welcoming there. It was a very friendly opening scene. Uh, it was easy to just walk in and become friends with people. Wow. And I, at the time, I didn't really know. I, I guess I would think of it differently now because I'm more sort of sophisticated in the way I picture things or, or think about that era. But at the time, I thought to myself, wow, they're just like Americans because they were so open and mm-hmm. friendly and it was really easy to make friends. Wow. Let's talk to someone else who has not read it yet. Yeah, I was wondering, is it, was it the clothes and the sound that was particularly challenging, or did the lyrics challenge the government as well? Oh, the lyrics were, um, you just can't believe what they were saying in the lyrics. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, and in the case of the bands, uh, there's a band called Namenlos, which means uh, basically a band with no name. Mm. They ended up going to Stasi prison for nearly two years, and that was on the basis of lyrics that were, we haven't touched on this yet, but... The only place they could play shows was in churches because the churches had a unique status in East Germany that they, the uniformed security forces couldn't go into churches. And so the churches, in theory, could offer uh, sort of a haven for taboo ideas to be expressed. A lot of churches were not comfortable with this, but there were a few ministers who took advantage of this and brought, among other things, punks into the churches to have concerts. And this band ended up going to jail for lyrics that were overheard by a, an informant who was at a church concert. So they basically jotted down notes about the lyrics. So, um, yeah, the lyrics were problematic. <laughs> Minister, so certain ministers brought in punks to perform concerts in churches. They would open up their churches yeah. or, or the rectories for, um, for use by the punks uh-huh. uh, a couple nights a week. Um, it was a really awkward relationship because yeah. <laughs> the church yeah, leadership okay. in general was not in favor of this type of nurturing of opposition. I would say, right? yeah. And it turned out after the walk came down it was uh, the 5% of church leadership were Stasi informants. Uh, um, and so the, 
the few ministers that took advantage of this were often, they were at odds not only with the Stasi mm. and often their own congregations, but also the church leaders. Um, and you know, the guy, there's, a, there's a minister who opened up a church in Halle for punks and threw the first ever national punk festival on this church grounds. Wow. <laughs> and he was openly um, called an enemy of the state. Really? Got a lady back there. I have a couple of questions for you. Um, so first off, how did kind of the, the punk band members and, and those who were kind of in the movement, so to speak, react 20 years later? I mean, where are they now? What are they doing? That's kind of question number one um, in general. And then question number two really is what was, so I lived in Berlin in 96 and 97. Okay. I lived in Punko. So okay, I was in yeah. the former, Punko was the former um, East German diplomatic area. Um, so even then, nice kind of, area. it was pretty awesome. But <laughs> just to back up kind of what you're saying, Berlin was this wide open slate because nobody knew what, particularly in the East, because nobody really knew what to do with it. It was just this kind of gaping hole. And it was really, I mean, you can see in the photos, quite a number of buildings that people just kind of took over. And they squatted in them, and they just took over ownership of them, et cetera. So it was a really incredible place to be. But um, so in the years that I was there, would have been kind of as you were heading out. I left in 98 or 99, 90, yeah, yeah 90, late 98. So it's kind of one of those where like when I was there, Tachelis was like the mm -hmm. place, right? But I can kind of see where the punk movement kind of would have looked at Tachelis like, eh, not But they squatted it. Right, did they? Okay, because yeah. it was a little too trendy or was it, you know, kind of what was that overall genesis for the punks to have kind of started this whole piece and then as it became trendy to be in the East, and to be in East Berlin, and it wasn't the punks that were doing that, but it was the bourgeois and everybody mm -hmm. else that was kind of coming in and moving in, kind of what feel you get from, from folks who were kind of like, hey man, we started this, and now it's like the most expensive rent district in Berlin. Tachlis so. is a really interesting case. Yeah. Um, it's a, it was a massive former department store that was completely bombed out, and about three months after the wall fell, a group of Berlin, the former East Berlin punks squatted it um, and it created this kind of cultural center. It had artist studios and music studios and concert venue, bars, clubs, uh, cinema. I mean, it was an amazing complex. And it became the petri dish for the formation of techno in a lot of ways, too. It came out of the top of the, the basement barn in Topless. But Trezor was also uh, co founded by former ex uh, East German punks, and so was um, VMF. So you probably remember so these places. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but Tachlis, eventually what happened was they invited some, there was a squat in West Berlin that got evicted, and they invited them to come and join in the Tachlis sort of uh, movement. And it, it sounds like a joke, but basically the Westerners took over all the money-making aspects of Tachlis. They took <laughs> over the bars and the clubs, and then the, the artists and the residents were basically fucked. And the guy who originally organized the whole squat was eventually actually kicked out of Tachlis. And, and so the, the whole experiment went south. They hung on until about maybe four years ago, but at that point it was just a more or less normal commercial enterprise with a bunch of artists living out the back. <laughs> so did you find that there was resentment from kind of, you know, when you went back over these past 10 years, did you find there was kind of like, well, that, you know, they ruined that for us, or was it more of a like, well, that's kind of what happens. I think there's a lot of wistfulness for that moment just after the wall fell. I mean, I. People try to, often people ask me about this thing called nostalgia, which is Eastern nostalgia, right? And I think there's a misunderstanding that 
people long for the dictatorship or long for the period before the fall of the wall, and I don't think that's true at all. I think they long for the moment the wall fell. Mm. None of these activists, none of the activists who helped bring down the wall were pro-Western. None of them wanted unification. <coughs> and so wow. the wistfulness, they, want? they wanted an independent, idealistic Eastern. They were all critics of the dictatorship <coughs> from the left. So they actually wanted to set up a sort of what they would consider a properly socialist East Germany. They didn't want to be what they saw as colonized by the West. And so the wistfulness is for that moment when it seemed possible to create this other thing, and then they lost control of the political process. And so that's how they, the formation of all those clubs was almost them retreating um, away from, they realized they weren't going to be able to control the political process, and then instead they decided they'd sort of revert back to the mode that they'd operated in in the East, which is we're going to carve out space, both physical and philosophical, where we can live the way we want to live. And that's what a place like Takalas totally embodied that. It was a whole world, sort of a self-sufficient world. And there was Imar, there was uh, Ima, it was up the road, um, which was, Takalas was actually squatted by a splinter group from Imar. Mm. And so it, there were all these, these, there were over 100 buildings squatted in the early 90s. And, oh, wow. and they were all these oases of basically this culture being extended beyond the period when they lost control of political process. So, so to follow up um, to part of her initial question, so these idealists wanted this independent East German state. Like, where are they now? What do they think about Germany today, this unified global behemoth? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all over the map. I think most of them come to peace with it at this stage. Um, <laughs> as for where they are now, which you asked as well, I mean, that's also, there's no... Um, it's a really heterogeneous um, uh, set of uh, results. Some of them are still involved in nightlife or music. Uh, wow. The guitar player from, from Planos makes uh, movie soundtracks, for instance. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the Bergheim, which is the most famous club at the moment, the, the sort of face of that club is a former East Punk. Um, wow. But then a lot of them have pretty normal lives. And then there's another subset who, another the Stasi were, again, really effective at their jobs. And the police tended to use physical brutality and the Stasi were psychological torture. Mm. And so some of the people who had extensive dealings with the Stasi have never been able to kind of um, deal with life in a normal way since. And so mm. uh, some of the people I interviewed were basically living off the grid and, and wow. um, have limited, yeah, limited yeah. interactions with the wider world. Wow. So those are, those are the most sort of tragic cases as far as, you know, on an interpersonal basis meeting people like that. So as to, what's your name, ma'am? It's Nan, like Nancy. Nan. So as someone who lived in, I mean, who thought that would happen, so who lived in East <laughs> um, Berlin in the uh, mid to late 90s, um, just hearing what you heard today, will that cause you to read this book? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I actually was a German studies major in college, so my focus oh. was women in, in Nazi Germany um, wow. and really kind of the breakdown of women who worked with Hitler, against Hitler, and women who didn't have a choice, which was uh, the, mm. the Jewish women. So for me, what I've always been interested in is the role of women in German history and mm. how that changes throughout the life cycle of what's occurring. Um, and just to kind of answer your question a little bit about there was this whole hope for an idealist state that was really the true, pure socialist state, mm -hmm. not the big brother socialist state that it became, right. um, you know, kind of directly after the war and kind of all of the trauma that ensued from that. So what's interesting is really the women that are in my generation that are kind of in their early to mid-40s, early mm -hmm. 50s, who were teenagers when the wall came down, sure. and for them, 
that's what's so interesting to me is that the majority of my, you know, I have friends both east and west who, you know, are in that mid-40s age range who have very different opinions, hmm. especially when we were teenagers who then now are adults and married and have kids or, you know, whatever, have very different <coughs> opinions about one another. And really? really, you know, within those first 10 years after the wall came down, it was really like, ugh, you know, the Aussies or the Easterners are ruining everything and they suck up all our money and they just take everything from us. And, you know, so the Westerners kind of continued and you see it replicated over these past few years with the immigrant population coming in. Um, so you kind of see it all over again. So for mm -hmm. me, it's just a different niche of, mm -hmm. you know, those, so I think they definitely want to read it just on, it's a different niche of kind of Berlin's history, but also Germany's history yeah. overall, which is this really, just messed up history, no matter how you look at it. You kind of have to really delve in deep yeah. um, on these types of issues that I think make it even more interesting. So. The gender issues are interesting in this book, too. Um, in theory, um, East Germany espoused gender equality, but Major, for instance, who ended up being the first punk in East Berlin, she um, was put into an apprenticeship uh, to be a typist, and there wasn't a single man in the, in the apprenticeship class. Wow. And so one of the things that she liked about the punk scene also was that it was more genuinely equal. There were a lot of women involved in the bands and, and in the scene in general. And so that's one of the other things they, that the Stasi reports mm -hmm. remark on. They'll say, we can't believe there were 300 punks at this event, and there were 100 of them were women. Wow. <laughs> so, and yeah, so I think that aspect will be of interest to you. Major ends up being basically the first person they make an example of. She's jailed for a year and then given a five-year belief um, vote, so forbidden to re-enter Berlin after she's released from, from jail, so she can't see her friends or family for those five years afterwards, and she's shipped to a small town built around a textile mill where she's supposed to work for the next five years. She runs away, goes back to Berlin, is re-arrested, put back in jail for a year, and then expatriated. Basically, they ship her to West Germany to take care of the problem. Wow. That's fascinating. That sounds like... That could be a book. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, there's, that was one of the frustrating things wow. in the book was there's paragraphs. So many different. Yeah. Wow. Might that be a follow-up book? <laughs> I would love to do a book devoted just to major. Yeah. Major. Wow. So, yeah. Ma'am, are you a mom with yes. your two boys? <laughs> so I have three points. So I want to okay. go back. Tim and I went to school together for okay. a long time. All right. So we're childhood friends. Okay. I'm very excited to be here. Um, two... Your point about this being relevant for today, you know, I've known about the Holocaust you know, most of my life, but only recently did I visit the Holocaust Museum, and I was floored by the rhetoric that I read in the Holocaust Museum and that I now hear <laughs> on the news today. So that is going to make me read this book. Mm -hmm. I want to see how this resistance came about and what they did to change it. And then three, right, I have my two sons here today because I want them to know that the world is open for them. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about your experience at UMBC, which is where I assume you went. And then, again, what made you say, I'm just going to get on this plane, what did your mom say to you? Right. Mom. just say, I'm going to Berlin. But my connection to UMBC is my dad taught there. And so I spent a lot, a lot of my childhood <coughs> in his office, or I was the water boy for the basketball team when I was in middle school, um, but I didn't actually go there. Um, I was really lucky in that both my parents were teachers, and so they were supportive of the idea of me basically 
going somewhere on a lark. And I mean, I think their patience wore thin eventually once, once it had been several years and it was clear that I was basically just partying. I mean, <laughs> I mean being a DJ in Berlin in the 90s is not like an intellectual <laughs> pursuit. You know? And in the meantime, my sister did a PhD. And so the family dynamic changed a bit. Um, but they also recognized that I was learning another language and, and fully sort of um, taking on this other culture. So Berlin today, it, it would be much more difficult to do what I did because there's so many expats and English is a, almost the first language of Berlin. I was only able, I learned German because basically I had to. There were no English speakers there. I didn't speak German. I had to communicate somehow. Um, so I got, there was, a, I had a lot of a luck and privilege in, in my life. You know, I, I knew that if anything went wrong, I could eventually call my parents and they could get me home. So I, I, it wasn't like a great um, sacrifice to get there or anything. I just, well, I remember for a while, when I would come back once in a while to the States, for the first three years, I didn't come back at all. But then, first eventually, I started to come back once in a while. And, and my college friends couldn't believe. They're like, I can't believe you're a DJ in Berlin. <laughs> How'd you do it? And I'm like, I bought a plane ticket. <laughs> Where, I, you know, I, it wasn't some great accomplishment. I had a nice uh, middle-class upbringing with educated parents, and they said, sure, go to Germany. So, so I don't like to portray it as having done something heroic at all. These people I found unbelievably heroic, but for me it was just a lark that ended up just by coincidence becoming a really significant part of my life. And as a result, pretty significant contribution to the historical narrative. I mean, I'll take your word for it, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the consensus there that, I mean, even from the even from the historian, even from the person who read it, and the person who read it. So, mom is going to read the book. Will your boys? Will you encourage your boys to read the book? I have one who's taking German and wants to be. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> you? So you, you're taking German now? Um, I'm not anymore within my schedule this year, but the past two years I have taken. Oh wow! wow. Can you say a little German? <laughs> Don't say a question in German. All the interviews, I'll, I won't speak to you in German because we'll exclude everyone else, but yeah, all the interviews were done in German. Wow. And, and obviously all the archival materials in German. Um, and, and it's a really unique type of German. You know how government documents tend to be written in a kind of bureaucratic version of whatever sure. language it is? And even by German standards, the Stasi had a very unique type of bureaucratic German. So, yeah. Um, but like I said, I didn't speak a word and got there, and it was just from from uh, listening to you all, you know that it's so directly phonetic. So once you can speak it, it's actually surprisingly easy to learn to read to read and write. Well, writing, my writing is still pretty crap, but reading it, um, because the, the unlike English, the letter combinations always make the same sound. Mm. So reading was actually shockingly easy to pick up once I could wow. speak it. So as a student of German and somebody who wants to be a DJ, will you read the book? Oh, yeah, I, I like history and I like like learning about World War II and, mm. and the effects of it. So I, I definitely take a lot of interest in this book. Let me try, let me try to pique your interest in for World War II. Every building I lived in while I lived there still had shrapnel damage from wow. the war. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was a different world. Could you tell us about the musical influences on these groups? Where did they get their musical styles from? It's an important point I should have mentioned before I read. Almost every place in East Germany could receive Western radio. 
The only place that was unable to pick up Western Radio was Dresden, because it's in a kind of a bowl at the far eastern side of the country, but every place else could get Western Radio. And so the music, a lot of them were exposed um, via British military radio, because mm -hmm. British military radio would broadcast John Peel's show, for instance, who did a lot of avant-garde punk and post-punk stuff, and they could pick up commercial radio from West Berlin, and so that, that brought in German punk, because there was a West German punk movement as well. Which then was influential, and I think that would have been key also in part to them realizing, oh, it's okay to write music in German because mm -hmm. all these all these bands actually, I translate the lyrics, but they were all in German. Some of the British punk and West German punk mm -hmm. influenced them. Yeah, and then I do think the significant the reason it changes from a teen fad to a a threat to the dictatorship is because it moved away from that Western influence. And so pretty quickly they're, they're writing stuff related to their own lives and they're no longer paying attention to what's happening in the West. So most of the influences musically are really early. Uh, one that people might not think of is X-Ray Spets, which was a yeah. woman-fronted punk band. And I think uh, because, again, to go back to the gender issue, because there were so many women involved in the scene, I think that's one reason X-Ray Spets was so liked in the least. Did you find that button up? Oh, I actually have a historical question. So um, all the Stasi documents that you saw, when I was reading this, I was telling my friend about it, she said, I thought so many of them were destroyed. Did you find everything you were looking for, 10% of what you were looking for? Well, I, I think the destruction was mostly aimed at protecting Stasi people themselves. Mm -hmm. So they would destroy the files related to themselves and their families. Like I have a friend whose dad worked for the Stasi, mm -hmm. and he went to get his file, and... Uh, we met at a bar the day he went to get his file. Said, so, what's, what's in your file? He said, it's empty. And we said, oh, you mean you don't have a file? He said, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> it's empty. <coughs> so his father or one of his underlings had clearly cleared out the family's uh, records. But these people were not related to Stasi people. Right. <laughs> um, and so the biggest problem with the files that I'm looking at would be redactions. So if you go to the files mm -hmm. and you ask for things on living people, it can be heavily redacted. Now, by the by, the time I got into the research, I could figure out what was missing anyway. I knew who, sure. who I knew enough relationships I could figure out who was who. But also, if you request your own file, you get them in much less heavily redacted form. And so, a lot of the stuff we used were files that had been requested by individual punks of their own file. We'll do one more question. Okay, one more. Well, it's actually two, if I may. Because <laughs> yeah. I think most of our person is interested in music to become a DJ, first of all, and then what was the spillover in any of the other sections in Eastern Germany, uh, aside from Berlin, that the scene? Uh, I'll just the second question first. It was a national scene. Um, Leipzig was also a very significant center of uh, punk activism. And the church in Leipzig was less infiltrated by Stasi um, informants, so they had a, a, a good run there. And that, that's not a coincidence that the street protests that in 89 came out of a church in Leipzig. Um, farther south in Turingen, uh, the same thing. The, there's only one person sort of regarded as a star from this scene because punk is sort of an anti-star culture um, and because they weren't present in media anyway. But there's one person sort of regarded as a star. And he uh, started in a pig stall in a rural town in the far south of East Germany. His band started in a, in a family pig stall. Um, he, uh, 
he had a rough life. Um, in 84, 85, they did a song that had the line, we are the people, we are the power. And the we are the people portion of that, at least that line, was one of the chants in Leipzig as the, as the demonstrations snowball. And we know that the earliest versions of these street protests were heavily packed with punks. So it's impossible to prove uh, or know for sure, but it's certainly possible, if <coughs> even likely, that this chant may have originated from this song by the guy from the band called Schleinkheim, um, who ended up uh, dying in a um, high security mental facility after he killed his father with an axe. Mm-hmm. <coughs> a lot of family conflict in these in these uh, in these scenes as well. They. One of the, another important thing I suppose to mention is that in addition to having problems with the security forces, initially they had trouble with their families and then with just sort of ordinary citizens. Because I think, and this is another point that's, that's relevant, um, I think in one of my, what I took away from my research is that the majority of people go along with the system regardless of what the system is. And that was true in East Germany as well. Um, and so the punks were constantly hassled by ordinary citizens early on before the security apparatus even took over to, to fight against them. There was another question. Yeah. So you must have had, initially, when you went over to Germany, a real interest in music in general. Total music head, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and also I, I had um, a record collection, which was something that a lot, not a lot of people had in the East because they'd only been unified for a couple of years and, and it cost mm-hmm. money to buy records and so the fact that I could um, come to the table with a box of records was a mm-hmm. significant factor in me being able to start DJing. <laughs> it's been a very fascinating discussion about this book, Burning Down the House. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.